1: Try to find a theme right now in today's market. Good luck. It probably will change tomorrow. Joining us now is an economist who puts out tremendous research every day that shows just what people are focused on. His latest note shows that macro investing is just getting that much more challenging amid the changing political backdrop that we end up seeing every day. Let's bring in Torsten Slock, chief economist for Deutsche Bank. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Let's just talk about how challenging it is right now for macro investors and in identifying a theme that you can sink your teeth into and depend on.
2: Yeah, no, it's for Deutsche Bank that I work, but uh, it's true that the environment at the moment has become much more difficult because central banks are basically not moving interest rates. So the thing we are pointing out here is that when interest rates uh, basically don't go down or don't go up, then uh, you have an environment where there's just no longer lasting trends in markets, and that just makes things difficult both for rates investors and also for FX investors.
0: So, Torsten, one of the issues I think that investors are trying to get a sense of now is, you know, as we think about all the geopolitical issues, trade tensions with China and Mexico, do you believe the market is properly discounting some of these global trade tensions right now?
2: Yeah, this this is a really important question, Paul, because what, what we're all trying to do in the investing community is to try to quantify these risks. Uh, The first question is, what has happened up to this point? How do we quantify that? Because we already know what has happened up to this point. But even figuring out what that means has been quite difficult. If you look at confidence uh, in the CEO surveys, if you look at confidence in the CFO surveys, then you do see that there there is some deterioration uh, once the trade war began to escalate in 2018. Uh, But at the same time, the employment numbers have remained relatively strong, at least up until the latest month here. So it it still is a really difficult strategy struggle, we just don't have anything in the toolbox that really will can quantify this trade risk, which then leads investors to say, well, it's a risk I can't quantify, so I should just ignore it? Or is it a risk I can't quantify, so I really have to take it seriously? And this is where the debate is with the many investors that we have at the moment, namely, is this something that we should just brush aside and say, oh, the economy is still fine? Or is this something that actually could end up being much more serious and have much more downside risk to the economy than what we are expecting at the moment?
1: So, Torsten, from your perspective, Uh, Do you think that as a result, people have become overly focused on the Federal Reserve as sort of the uh, key body that can give some direction here?
2: Yeah, because that if, when, when central banks, uh, I mean, the G7 central banks are essentially not moving interest rates much, uh, and they're moving much less than they did just uh, uh, 10, 20 years ago, of course, then uh, people start looking around and saying, OK, change in policy is no longer a change in interest rates, but it's now a change in communication about what are we doing, and this is not only for the US, but what are we doing globally on unconventional monetary policy, everything from forward guidance to uh, QE, which, of course, is less of a issue now, but uh, now we're instead talking about yield curve control, other ways of stimulating the economy next time we have a slowdown, and the interpretation of these non-conventional monetary policy tools and most importantly all these things that are not interest rates just makes things much more difficult so to your good question lisa it really is much more into the nitty-gritty of what exactly is intended with this fed communication and should we interpret it as more easing is coming or should we interpret it as hey we're just looking at this and we will be doing something we don't quite know exactly what it is But we will be doing something if there is a sharper slowdown. And for the Fed, of course, it's lowering interest rates initially. But if we do have a global slowdown, then uh, we will all be debating again, should we then do QE, forward guidance? Should we raise the inflation target? Should it be yield control? That's why it becomes a much more messy debate about what reactions are coming from the central bank, which makes it so difficult from a macro perspective to identify well what trends is that going to create, both in rates and also in FX.
0: So Torsten, I think what we're hearing more and more, um, you know, is the potential or perhaps even likelihood by mid 2020, a recession in the US. Is that something you think is you ascribe to?
2: So we still think that's unlikely. Uh, we think that the Fed uh, will uh, begin to think about cutting rates here in July and September and December. And once those cuts come through, we do think also that that ultimately will be a preemptive strikes, if you will, that will be enough to uh, basically soften the slowdown that we're seeing. But at the end of the day, the sharpness of the slowdown uh, that we are experiencing in the data uh, is absolutely critical. And this, again, is very, very closely related to what is your outlook for when the trade war will end. If you think the trade war will escalate from here, well, then the economy might slow a bit more. If you think the trade war is really going to have a full blowout trade war where you will see significant increases in tariffs and significant disruptions to supply chains. It could potentially be a lot worse, but it's really difficult where we stand today to come with a forecast because these things could go away as quickly as they came. In other words, uh, this is something that is essentially a political situation that came relatively suddenly and now if we do have a resolution, a deal uh, for example at the G20 meeting, then uh, this risk could go away uh, relatively quickly again. So from a forecasting perspective, when you think about the outlook for consumption CapEx and GDP, it just continues to be really difficult what your assumptions are about what Will be the end game to the trade war. And is there an end game or is this going to continue for a very long period?
1: I guess that, Torsten, there's a question of how much the US economy would be slowing down anyway, even if it weren't for the trade tensions. What are the recession risks, putting aside trade tensions, if you can, uh, just based on an organic slowdown, given how late we are in the cycle?
2: Yeah, this is really important. I mean, as you know all too well, the two key components of GDP are consumption and CAPEX or investment. And if you look at consumption, one problem is that interest rates on credit cards have started to move higher. Interest rates on auto loans have started to move higher. You've also seen delinquency rates on consumer loans have started to move slowly higher. And most importantly in this context, in, uh, delinquency rates on auto loans have also started to move higher. So the first answer to your question is that the, there's some, something brewing, uh, erosion, if you will, in the delinquency rate for consumers that's beginning to slowly move higher. And when interest rates also move higher on credit cards, auto loans, and other consumer loans, you do begin to worry a bit about what are the consequences organically outside the trade war to the consumer outlook. And for CapEx, uh, last year, of course, we got the huge tax cut from the administration. This was very helpful in boosting CapEx and now those tax cuts are beginning to slowly run out of steam, so the positive effects of that organically are also becoming smaller and smaller. So that's also resulted in some slowdown in the CAPEX data. So the long answer to your question is that uh, even outside the trade war, we are indeed as you're pointing out, Lisa, we are indeed seeing already some signs of risks in particular CAPEX slowing down but also the additional risk here to consumption because of uh, the modest increase in delinquency rates and the modest increase that we're seeing in cost of So we are watching where we are in the cycle and what the implications are for the organic outlook above and beyond what's going on with the trade war.
0: Torsten Slok, thank you so much uh, for joining us in your comments. Uh, Torsten is a chief economist for Deutsche Bank, uh, joining us on the phone. He is based in New York. Well, trade tensions between the U.S. and Mexico appear to have abated, at least for the time being. But President Trump told reporters that he reached a secret immigration pact with Mexico that will take effect when he wants it to, despite the country's insistence that there are no secret components of an immigration deal struck last week. So let's see if we can get some clarification here. We welcome Duncan Wood. Duncan is the director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center that is based in Washington, D.C. Duncan, thanks so much for joining us. So can you give us any enlightenment on what this secret immigration deal might be?
3: Um, the best guess that we have is that uh, Mexico has agreed that uh, if after either 45 or 90 days, depending on uh, which deadline they choose, and when I say they, it's probably going to be the United States, um, if, they, if enough if uh, enough progress hasn't been made on reducing the flow of Central Americans through Mexico to the uh, U.S. southwest border, that Mexico would consider becoming a safe third country. In other words, that Mexico would um, be a place in which refugees or asylum seekers, rather, could, uh, um, could uh, or should seek uh, asylum uh, after leaving their home country. So in other words, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorians who are coming up through Mexico um, would have to seek uh, refugee status asylum in Mexico um, rather than in the United States. And That's something that Mexico has resisted for a long, long time. Um, it greatly reduces the, uh, the burden on the United States because um, if anybody does make it up to the United States border, then they would be immediately returned to Mexico and they would have to apply for asylum there. So that's really what I think that we're we're probably looking at. Um, It's going to cause a huge political stink in Mexico if that's what the deal is, because a lot of people are going to say, once again, Mexico is essentially uh, rolling over for the United States. Um, Already there are so many op-eds being written in Mexico and commentaries on on television that Mexico has essentially become the wall for the United States rather than following through on Donald Trump's promise to make Mexico pay for the wall. Mexico is the wall for the United States and that it will essentially stop migrants from coming up through the country. So I think that this is a – it's politically explosive for the president, López Obrador, but it may be um, the only way – that they see to avoid the application or imposition of tariffs at this point in time.
1: So does that mean that the impl- uh, implementation of tariffs is more likely than people are realizing at this point?
3: Uh, my reading of what the uh, the president has said uh, president trump has said is that they have been suspended yes he said indefinitely and people tend to interpret indefinitely as being long term i don't see it that way at all i see it that uh, you know if mexico does not succeed in stopping the flow of central americans then the 5% tariff can be pulled out of the toolbox again and slapped on uh, on mexico and of course that creates huge uncertainty for mexico um, at a time when the Mexican economy is not doing well, at a time when President López Obrador's economic plans are not going well, and investor confidence is, uh, is, uh, is disappearing in Mexico. So this is absolutely um, – you know, it's terrible timing uh, for, for Mexico um, and therefore makes President Trump's uh, threat that much more effective.
0: So, Duncan, do you think that Mexico has the capabilities to meaningfully stem illegal
3: immigration? Uh, I don't. Uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, Mexico has been working exceptionally hard over the last five years, essentially since 2014, to, uh, to detain and deport hundreds of thousands of Central Americans. In fact, uh, if you look at the last five years as a whole, uh, Central Ameri- uh, Mexico has deported more Central Americans than the United States has. Um, and, uh, you know, Mexico has been doing an incredible job. The problem is, is that the crisis is so huge now that Mexican authorities are overwhelmed. U.S. authorities and agencies are overwhelmed, and uh, it would require a massive injection of resources, financial, human, technical, and technological, to actually uh, begin to stem the flow. The gambit here is that if you had Mexico adopting safe third country status, then the migrants would choose not to come. And I think that's a pretty big gamble, if you ask me. I don't think that uh, – I think that people are leaving because conditions are terrible. They're desperate to get to the United States. Let's say they do land in, in Mexico and uh, you know, they're, they're forced to, to seek asylum there. That doesn't mean they'll stop moving. Once they have asylum in Mexico, they can still move up to the United States. We're still gonna see massive levels of illegal migration across the southwest border.
1: So Duncan, one key question here is President Trump is sort of using his executive power to threaten these tariffs and possibly impose them on Mexico uh, in an unusual way. It's the first time, at least in modern history, that a president has used them this way. And I'm wondering uh, whether there'll be challenges to that. In other words, uh, is this something that could face opposition internally, or is it totally a go?
3: Uh, sorry. When you mean internally, do you mean internally in the United States? Yes, or in, in the United States. The, no, I think that we've already seen um, uh, opposition in the United States. We've seen business associations, um, we've seen uh, members of Congress stating that this is a, a dangerous path to go down. But what's what I think is is telling is that we haven't seen any really well coordinated opposition. Uh, nobody standing up in Congress and saying that they will seek legal means of uh, of restraining the president from from applying these kind of tariffs. Um, and I think part of it is that uh, you know the uh, the IEEPA, um, the powers under which he would uh, he would apply these tariffs. I think it's it's quite. I mean, it's it hasn't really been properly explored, um, and so we'd we'd all be hanging on tenterhooks, waiting to see what a court would rule on this. Um, and I think that uh, you know, most people have accepted that if it was just a 5% tariff, then we could probably live with that. There would be a depreciation of the Mexican peso to compensate for some of that uh, 5%. Um, and uh, you know, the, the trade would continue. But once you get up beyond a 10% escalating tariff, and let's say you did get to 25%, which was the original threat, that by October it would be a 25% tariff then that's disastrous. That's disastrous for integrated um, uh, manufacturing platform in North America. It's disastrous for supply chains, and it would cause a real crisis in the Mexican economy.
0: Duncan, just real quickly, 20 seconds. What do the Mexican people feel right now? Are they really coming up in arms against uh, this tariff threat?
3: So um, we've seen uh, Mexican public opinion of the United States fall to uh, historic lows. Um, We have seen overall support for President López Obrador, um, and the fact that his, his overall attitude in negotiating with the United States is essentially trying to be as calm and moderate as possible. Um, and Mexicans do not believe that uh, their country should become a wall for the United States. But at the same time, their attitudes towards migrants is changing. They're becoming less welcoming, less friendly towards Central American migrants than they ever have before. So as we've seen in many countries around the world that are overwhelmed with migration crises, unfortunately, Mexico is, uh, is going down the same path and that I think it'll become a less friendly country for migrants.
1: Duncan Wood, thank you so much for being with us. Duncan Wood, director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, joining us from Washington, D.C.
0: A relatively quiet morning of trading in U.S. equity indices. Not a big move in either of the indices. First, let's go see where there's some movement maybe in the small-cap world with Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Dave?
4: Well, you're definitely seeing smaller companies down more than larger ones, that's for sure. The Russell 2000 index down a half a percent, and the S&P 500 is only lower by two-tenths of a percent. The Russell steepest drop belongs to Saris Therapeutics, whose ticker is MCRB. The drug developer has fallen 24% after raising $60 million in a share sale. Ashford Hospitality Trust, ticker AHT, has lost 15%. The luxury hotel owner reduced its quarterly dividend by half to $0.06 a share, Ashford's cut was the first since 2008 when the payout was eliminated entirely. And Meat Group, ticker M-E-E-T, has slipped almost 9%. The social media app company was the subject of a critical report by a short-selling firm called the Friendly Bear. Now, the Russell's biggest gain belongs to Arcul, ticker A-R-Q-L. The developer of cancer treatments is up 35.5%. Early stage study data on a proposed blood cancer drug was favorable. And Blue Green Vacations, ticker BXG, has risen almost 29%. The timeshare owner settled a dispute with retailer Bass Pro Shops. The deal will let Blue Green resume marketing at Bass stores and expand into the country. Uh, the company's sister chain, Cabela's. And we should note BBX Capital, ticker BBX, has a stake in Blue Green, and that stock is up 16%. And you see the headline just yeah Chewy.
1: Yeah, opening at $36 after an initial public offering at $22 a share. So this is one lucrative uh, pet food operation.
4: You're not kidding. And PetSmart is the seller of most of those shares that... Uh, were distributed, you might say, to investors in the initial public offering. So they're, they're definitely a winner on this deal.
1: Yeah, losers are the people who are the debt investors because they could have evidently raised more money to pay back said debt investors. We'll get into that another time. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, thank you so much for that. It is getting to be close to lunchtime on Wall Street, about, I don't know, 55 minutes if you have a 12 o'clock exact kind of clock. Uh, and what I feel like is a big, juicy plant-based protein product in a bun. Joining us now to talk about that, Dina Shanker. She's a consumer reporter for Bloomberg News. Um, I'm talking about the Impossible Burger because evidently it's incredibly popular as it gets rolled out to what it says is 9,000 stores, perhaps a little too popular. Can you give us a sense of what's going on here?
5: Yes, definitely. So Impossible is having a lot of trouble supplying its customers, Uh, specifically uh, even White Castle and Red Robin, these are major fast food chains, are not able to get their hands on the product. At the same time, Impossible is rolling out into more and more Burger Kings. So whether there's a cause and effect there, that's that's a good question.
0: So, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, these are not Just organic stores, organic outlets, they're bringing these synthetic burgers to Burger King, right?
5: That's right. The plant-based burger mania is widespread. It's gone way beyond the vegans and the vegetarians, and is fully mainstream. So these companies, these big restaurant companies, are really trying to get their hands on these products, and they do bring new customers into the stores. So Impossible Foods is leaving some of these restaurants in a tough spot. Well, so I guess I'm
1: wondering, are we are we seeing a sort of a Tesla moment here with respect to Beyond uh, Meat? I'm talking about Beyond Meat because their IPO has been just absolutely unbelievable astronomical types of uh, gains and impossible foods also attracting a lot of uh, attention. But is it an issue where they can't kind of fulfill on the promise
5: of the supplies? So that's the big question right now. Uh, For what it's worth, Beyond Meat said that they learned a lot from their shortages in 2017 and 2018 and that they don't see that really happening again. But at the same time, Freebirds is a burrito chain in Texas and they reported that they don't have their Beyond Meat products. So I think we're going to have to wait and see how long these shortages last and how widespread they are. But it does seem like keeping up with demand is one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenges that these companies have.
0: So that raises the question for me, barriers to entry. Um, Why can't any existing food company come out with their own synthetic kind of thing and just kind of take over the market and push some of these smaller companies out? Like Tyson. Like Tyson.
5: So actually there are a lot of companies in this space and they are uh, big and small. Tyson just unveiled its own some would call it a competitor to the Beyond and the Impossible Burger, but it's actually a half beef, half pea protein blend. So whether or not uh, you get the same customer is a question that uh will remain uh, to be answered um, and then you have other smaller companies that you've probably never heard of that are pushing out their own versions um, quietly carefully to make sure that they can meet the demand when it's there
1: yeah, I didn't know that flexitarian was a thing but evidently that's a thing and and Tyson's <laughs> going to cater to those flexitarians oh, yeah, yeah. I, but I'm wondering Dina, have you had an impossible burger and Beyond Meat products? Have you tried all these?
5: So I've had uh, both of them, but I have not had an Impossible Burger recently. That was actually how we figured out this uh, shortage was happening was because I went to a White Castle near my apartment. It said Impossible Sliders right outside uh, on the sign and turned out they were all out.
1: So do you think that they are as good as the meat version?
5: I don't eat meat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i'm not the target customer oh, actually you're exactly, exactly the, the target. target customer
1: but we
0: actually did have a dave wilson kind of review of, of several days ago and dave wilson bloomberg stocks editor is a hamburger eater uh, by his own admission and he said it was okay he said it was okay so that's that's a win i think yeah but i think it's kind of our journalistic duty at some point over the next week i think we have to go have a beyond meat burger just to have some pr- do some primary research on it
1: amen let's go <laughs> we'll make a lunch date yeah. uh, thank you so much Dina Shanker consumer reporter for Bloomberg News really really great reporting and interesting to sort of see how this supply issue is sort of emerging in some of these very hot startups and less more than startups right yep. but I'm thinking about Tesla and I, I said Tesla moment because yep. you know when demand is so outstripping supply in some of these fad companies or more than fad right. uh, sea change companies uh, it can become a serious headwind to the business. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it, it kind of goes to the issue of, you know, when are some of these, you know, big uh, mainstream food companies you know, that can really get product out there in scale and have they have the relationships with all the the retailers they can really take over the market? but We haven't seen that yet.
1: We are so lucky to have with us someone who has been watching the markets for decades and looking for the accurate indicators to foretell the future. Nick is co-founder of Datatrek Research, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. I want to start with oil because it has been a, a big conundrum, frankly, for people, especially given the fact that right now we're seeing escalating tensions in the Middle East, which should lead to price gains, which we saw briefly yesterday. Today, we're struggling to hold on to those. What do you make, I mean, the larger takeaway, what do you make of the fact that oil prices have have really actually declined this year, despite uh, some of the ongoing growth that we're seeing?
6: Yeah, no, it's a great point. If you look back at the oil chart from year to date to now, you're looking at a peak back in April. It's down 20% since then. Oil is in a bear market as we speak. And you have some little geopolitical rifts that kind of helped it yesterday. But the bottom line is that economic worries, global economic worries, are clearly in the driver's seat when it comes to oil prices. And that's negative because it's a bad sign for the global economy. But on the plus side, you've never had a recession, at least since 1970 in the U.S., without oil prices first doubling. It's the only kind of clear recessionary indicator you can look at to say we're in trouble and the good news is we're not on that point so a lot of uh, guests that Lisa and I have
0: been interviewing over the last really several couple months have been suggesting that a recession is increasingly
6: likely by mid 2020 is that something you think that is reasonable I get the fear the fixed income market tells you that's a fear the Fed funds futures market tells you that's a fear so at this point I think that's probably the sort of default value in people's minds. But, you know, the oil price thing is some measure of of help. And a Federal Reserve that seems more inclined to cut rates might let us sort of skate by a recession, but it certainly is a low growth, 1, 1.5% one growth kind of environment for at least the next four quarters.
1: So I don't want to become that person who says this time is different and everybody laughs at them when it's not in about a year, but I guess I'm wondering whether the dynamics in oil have changed to such a degree given the shale output from the United States uh, that, that sort of the necessity for oil prices to double ahead of a recession kind of Loses its its, its gravitas.
6: Uh, it it may well. I'd say the other side of it, though, is there's still a lot of oil that goes through you know through the Straits of Hormuz, which is sort of the flashpoint right now. And typically, you know, if you think back to '73 and '79, access to oil has been as critical as the price of it itself. You know, we had actual shortages in both '73 and '79 here in the U.S. It may not come to pass that way because of national output, domestic output now. But I'd say you'd want to see some bounce in oil prices to think that we were at the cusp of seeing a, a consumer and business environment that was going to be worse in the next 12 months than the prior. Lower oil prices absolutely helps and provides a bit of a tailwind. So, Nick, whether or not we have a recession in 2020,
0: is it time to get defensive in a portfolio?
6: Yeah, it's the number one question I get from clients right now is, if if so, and the answer is, look, I mean, the way I think about being defensive is if you think it's time to be defensive, then be defensive. Um, you know, there, there's no point in second guessing that 10 years into a recovery with you know, a fairly dicey global picture, both in terms of sovereign debt and corporate debt, both at obviously all-time highs. And so the short answer is yes. If you feel that way, absolutely. Our favorite defensive sectors in the U.S. market, at least, are real estate, uh, a, lot, a lot of lot of hidden tech exposure there that makes a little growth through the utilities and consumer staples because even though there's been under a lot of attack fundamentally, they do pay very good dividends and they are relatively safe and they're big enough part of the S and P to actually allow you to play defensive without having to double overweight something like utilities.
1: So REITs, you're saying basically? Yep.
6: Yeah, REITs. REITs are kind of a misnomer now. If you look at the top ten holdings in the XLRE, for example, you're looking at things like cell phone towers they've and done, warehouses. Yeah, they've, they've made REITs into. You
0: mentioned cell phone tower, billboard companies. Yep. It's just amazing how they've you know, used that REIT structure for lots of different in- sectors. Yeah,
6: it's it's a really a misnomer. It's not real estate anymore. It's, it's structured cash flows. Uh, that's what allows you to be a REIT, um, just sort of by definition. And so that's, I think, a hidden positive behind the real estate sector in the S&P. The downside is it's small. It's three, three and a half percent of the S&P. You can't double weight that as a, a portfolio manager and, and still hold to a benchmark. So you have to look at bigger sectors like Staples.
1: So it's, why not just be super aggressive If you think that we're not going to see a recession.
6: You know, the way to be super aggressive historically has been to be really long tech. That's kind of a spicy play going the back half of the year, because if you read, you know, the comments from the WDA assistant A. G. earlier in the week at the speech in Tel Aviv, talking about his thought process for regulating tech antitrust, it's very aggressive. Same thing on the house side with these new uh, justice uh, investigations. So I think it's a little bit hard to be super long tech as a way to be aggressive in the market. That's kind of what I think what holds back gains for the back half of the year. We're not going down materially, I don't think, but these regulations and issues with tech are definitely going to cap the tech upside. That's twenty-one percent of the S and P.
0: That's interesting because it's a it's a topic that we've been discussing for a while here. Has I guess asking the question has the the worm really turned in terms of U.S. regulation of tech? Historically, a very light touch. Has that fundamentally changed? And I guess in your mind, perhaps it might be changing a little bit?
6: My worry is that even if nothing happens in the next year, you're going to hear so much about it because we're going into a very important political year. And this is a very popular topic. We hear it from clients, and I hear it on social media all the time. There is a lot of concern that tech has gotten too big. And there is some desire to see some incremental regulation, perhaps not a full breakup, but regulation, absolutely. And that is going to cap sentiment.
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting. I think you're exactly right. I think because uh, you mean we talk to uh, institutional investors who have really you know historically been in the tech space. One of their big risks has been: Gee, is that day ever going to come when uh, yeah U.S. regulators will really take a hard look at this industry? Historically, it's just kind of been the Europeans. You know, taking a look whether it's Microsoft 25 years ago, and uh, but the big the big downside scenario for a tech long story is U.S. regulatory risk. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Nick is co-founder of Data Trek Research. Uh, in, he joins us here in uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Nick is also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, taking a look at how to get positioned in this market. We're 10 plus years uh, into this economic cycle. We have rising uh, trade uncertainties uh, with two of our biggest trading partners. Yet on the other side, we have a a very benign Federal Reserve who appears willing and able to step in and uh, support the market. So investors are weighing those across the board. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.